But before I ask, or invite the children to uh, Children's Church, I've got to say Happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. So we have to have the children present for that, right? It's kind of contractual obligation. So if our children would like to go to uh, Children's Church, teacher will meet you in the back. And um, one more pastoral prerogative, I want to thank the Ladies Craft Fellowship for fixing our banners. <laughs> we put them up around Easter because I found them and they looked nice, but you couldn't read them from more than a foot away. And I think they did a marvelous job on that. So thank you, ladies. That's, that's really appreciated. Uh, so before we turn to the word, let me open us in a time of prayer. Lord, you have indeed been so good to us. And you are good. And we acknowledge, Lord, that all your plans are right and just. And so with Ramey, I kind of resonates thinking of the uh, Dodger Stadium full of people who don't know you, full of people who um, maybe went to church as children and it never really connected with them. Uh, Lord, would you have mercy on all of the people that were there last night, every single person, Lord, would you extend to them your effectual call and draw them to the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they wouldn't sing that song ever again without a guilty heart. And uh, Lord, I, I just we pray that your name would be glorified in all the earth. And Lord, to that end, would you be with us now as we look into your word? Help us to see and to understand. Help us to read your word rightly and to gather what it is that you want us to see. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're coming to the end of chapter 18. And where this is going to lead us is this is kind of a turning point now. Um, the first part of the reading that you heard this morning, Jesus announces, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. And really from chapter 19 on, that's the, the prime drive in the message. We, uh, he's announced before that he's going to Jerusalem. He, he, we've been on this track for a bit. But really in chapter 19, the focus then swings and we're heading toward Jerusalem. So that's part of what's happening at the end of chapter 18 is he's getting us ready. But it's also the end of this lengthy teaching session that he had. So he's got more to say to us and he's got more to demonstrate for us. So let's take a look at this. This first part is, um, once again, he calls his disciples aside. Uh, taking the 12, he said to them, so he's gathered the 12. The, these apostles, these ones who he specially set aside, who will be leading the church after his ascension. He calls them to himself, uh, apart from the rest of the disciples, apart from the rest of the crowd. And he says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, that, and everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So Jesus looks to them and he says, look, we're really, we're heading toward Jerusalem now. And then the thing that I found kind of interesting is he says, Everything that the prophets have written about the Son of Man will be accomplished. And he'll explain that in the next sentence. He'll explain what that is. Um, but don't forget that the people expecting the Messiah expected a reigning king. And some people expected two messiahs. There would be a reigning king, and then there would be a, a, a priest who would cleanse the temple. And some even went so far as to think there would be three messiahs, a king, a priest, and then the suffering servant. They couldn't put those all together into one person. It just didn't make sense. And so for some reason, Jesus, though he was brought up in this rabbinical tradition, though he was taught this from his childhood, Jesus got it. He looks at the scriptures and he says, look, I am the Messiah. I am the reigning king. I am the prophet. But I'm also going to be the suffering servant. And so how is it that he was able to put all of that together, to read the scriptures and understand there's one Messiah, one person who's going to accept this role, who's going to do all of these things? 
so that when he starts his public ministry, he sets his eyes towards Jerusalem and he says, this is specifically what's going to happen to me. Well, he got it from the scriptures. He understood it because he tells us right here, everything that was written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So he's reading the prophets. He's reading the same scriptures as these other folks. And yet somehow he was able to put it together in a way that he understood it correctly and nobody else got it. And we'll get that in, in a few minutes. We'll get how they just don't get it. It doesn't sink in. But the question I want to ask here is, how is it that Jesus knew this? How did he understand it? Um, and, and the cheat answer is, well, he's God. <laughs> well, yes, that's absolutely true. He is 100% man, and he's 100% God. But he's 100% man. And he grew up before people. He grew up as a child in a rabbinical tradition under, under the teaching of rabbis with the scriptures before him. And so how is it that the humanity of Jesus grasped this? How did he get it? Well, first of all, we have to remember Jesus is a prophet. He's a prophet like no other prophet, but he's a prophet. And so he would have the scriptures illuminated for him that the way that the prophets would. God would it, it help them to understand in some way, either just mentally grasp it or he might send an angel to announce it to them, or he might speak to them directly and say, thus saith the Lord. So however it was, Jesus as a prophet received this. He understood. He got it. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember from chapter 4, verse 1, when he began his ministry, he came into his ministry filled with the Holy Spirit. So first of all, he's a prophet. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He understands the scriptures because God has specially equipped him to. The second way I think that Jesus was able to unpack this in a way that the, the popular teaching of the day, all the best commentaries didn't agree with him, is that he was sinless. Jesus was like us in every way. He had full humanity. He had human mind, will, emotions. He had a human spirit, a human soul. And yet he didn't have sin. And so as Jesus is reading the scriptures, his eyes are not clouded by a self-centered, self-serving desire that sin has in all of us. So he's able to read the scriptures. He's able to read through the prophets and hear this is what God is going to do. Clearly, like a, a clear ringing bell, he's able to do it. Whereas when we read it, we, we, our brains are fuzzed. It's called the noetic effects of sin. The noetic effects of sin means it affects our minds as well. Our, our rational capacity is affected by sin. It's tainted by it. So Jesus, as a sinless person, is able to read the prophets and say, this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. And then finally, we have to acknowledge Jesus is God. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. The two natures in him did not mingle and turn into something strange, third kind of party. They didn't not exist together in the same person. He didn't switch from God role to human role. Um, like he was switching out personalities. He's not schizophrenic, but somehow, in some way, his divinity and his humanity coexisted. And so, since he's a prophet, since he's sinless, and since he's God, he's able to read these scriptures and understand exactly what the Bible had said was going to happen to him. And so he reads it, and he doesn't think that there must be two or three different messiahs. He gets it. Now, this is important because we have to ask, well, how are we going to read the Bible? Can we read the Bible, and can we get it? Well, the way we read the Bible is we read it the way Jesus taught us to. The, the scribes and the Pharisees didn't have a Jesus in their history to teach them, this is how you read the scriptures. Jesus has shown us. He's led us in the way on how we should read the Bible. So we, we learn from the scriptures how to read it. We learn from um, the apostles how they would read it. 
So if I can give an example of how the apostles, they, they don't get it, we'll see, but they did get it. They eventually got it. From Acts chapter 1, there's this, this period I like to call the church in the gap. Um, Jesus has ascended, but the Holy Spirit hasn't descended yet. And so there's this brief story where they're in the gap between the, the ascension of Jesus and the, and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And what they did was, this is in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, is they kind of have this moment together and they have to think, what are we supposed to be doing? And so verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was around 120, and said, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted a share in his ministry. So Peter stands up and he says, look, guys, we've got to do something here. And he turns to the scriptures, and he says, look, the scriptures are inspired. David was filled with the Holy Spirit when he spoke this. Now, Luke inserts in verses 18 and 19 this kind of parathetical statement explaining what happened to Judas. So I'm going to skip that for a second and pick up again with what Peter's saying. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter turns to the scriptures. He says, what are we supposed to do? He reads the Psalms and he says, you know what? The Psalms are about Jesus. They're about what was going on. And so when we look at at the office that Judas has vacated, what are we supposed to do? The scriptures tell us, let his camp become desolate and no one to dwell in it. So all that had been written about him has happened. But we also read in another Psalm, let another take his office. So while he has gone his way, the scriptures are telling us we need to put a new person in this position. And so that's exactly what they do. This church in the gap, this church between the times, they recognize that the 12 are not filled. They need to fill the 12. So they read the scriptures the way Jesus taught them to read the scriptures. It's about Jesus. It's about who he is. And so that's how they read the Psalms. And the Psalms lead them to believe that they should pick another apostle. And that's exactly what they do. So this is is kind of the nature that I want to start us in, is this idea that we can learn to read the scriptures from Jesus. That's part of being a disciple of his, is following his example, following his lead. He's telling us to read the scriptures. The prophets are talking about him. The law is talking about him. The writings, the history are talking about him, pointing towards his coming. And so that's what he does. Now, here's how he interprets all of these scriptures together, the prophets. He goes on in in the next verse, and he says, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is telling them, this is what the prophets have promised. This is what the prophets have been telling us what happened to the Messiah. And the frustrating thing is he doesn't tell us which prophets, which scriptures. Could you give us some references here, Jesus? Um, We just don't know. But... What we, we can take a look and, and take a shot at a few of them. Some of them, I think, kind of stand out. Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, it says, I gave my back to those who would strike me and my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So Jesus read that and he said, that's what's going to happen to the Messiah. They're going to pluck out his beard. They're going to spit in his face. Isaiah 53, we could do the whole chapter just about. But one thing that he says is, he was despised and rejected of man, of men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And as one whom, 
from whom men hid their faces, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We are not going to give him the due recognition, or the recognition he's due. We're going to treat him shamefully. We're going to mock him. And then Psalm 22, all who see me mock me. They make their mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So Jesus reads these, and he, he isn't thinking that this is applying strictly to David. He says, these are talking about the Messiah. This is what's going to come. They, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. Psalm chapter 2, or, or Psalm 2 starts out with this. Why do the nations rage? Nations is the word for Gentiles. That's, wh that's what the word means. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers and take counsel together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So Jesus reads that and he says, this is the Gentiles' reaction to the Messiah. They hate him. And so he's, they're going to be involved in this. This is how Jesus put all this together. And he announces that this is what's going to happen as they approach Jerusalem. And as horrible as that news is, as bad as it gets, it's not the end. Because the next part, Jesus says that they'll kill him and that three days later he will rise again. So he got the idea that he would rise from the dead. Where did he get the three days later? Well, if we look at the other Gospels, he got it from Jonah. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish and then came out. And, and he looks to that and he says, look at the sign of Jonah. So this is where he's getting these things. He, he doesn't pull them out of thin air. He doesn't go, well, I'm divine, so I just know these things. These things have been revealed. They were expected to understand them. They were expected to get them. Um, they were in the prophets. You should read this and understand. So what happens? How do the, the apostles, the 12 apostles, respond? But they did not understand, or they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. My first temptation is just to go, oh, you guys. You know, I try to imagine the conversation. Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And one of, the, one of the 12 looks at me, Thomas, have you got a clue what that meant? Andrew, is he speaking metaphorically? John, he likes you. Has he explained to you this? I don't understand what he just said. It's, it's like as clear as a bell, and they're all going, well, surely that can't be what it means. And, you know, had we been there, surely we would have understood, Right? There is a phenomena called confirmation bias. And, and what confirmation bias means is once you believe something, any contradictory evidence that comes to you is hard to accept. You're biased against it. So in 1975, there was a study done in Stanford, uh, Stafford where they brought some undergrad students in as volunteers and they said, we have this set of notes. Half of them are fake and half of them are real. We want you to read the notes and then tell us which ones are fake and which ones are real. So they gave them to this group of undergrads and they read them. And then after they read them, they said, this group here got almost every single one of them right. It was amazing. How did you guys do that? They got them all. You guys nailed them. Whereas this group, you guys missed most of them. You only got a couple. And so then they, they released them. And so they called them back about a week later and they said, well, that isn't what happened. <laughs> you actually all scored horrible. Nobody did particularly well. What we wanted to do was measure your response to bad news. 
And so, so we just want to let you know, you know, we, we did our study, we've, we've checked you out, and, and you all did terrible, and, and so we're sorry for lying to you, but that was part of the study. You know what? They still hadn't gotten to the study yet. The study came after this. They brought them back again, they interviewed them, and they said, so how do you think you did it, reading these notes and determining which ones were right and which ones were wrong? And this was the actual test. Because the people that they had lied to and said, you nailed it, they said, oh, we did better than the average. Even though they had just been told, no, you didn't. That's confirmation bias. That is, I've already received this good news, this idea that I appreciate, that I like, and any contradictory evidence that comes to me, I'm going to filter it out because I like the answer I've already got. Uh, by the way, this is how science works. <laughs> there, there, my, my theory of how science progresses is scientific progress goes boing. Um, there's, there's the established norm where people believe this is how the world operates, and we all believe that. Everybody knows that to be true. And you get an outlier who comes and says, yeah, but maybe not. And, well, they're a heretic. Don't listen to them. And then their followers begin to study, and they go, no, wait, we have some evidence. Oh, the evidence is, is outside the, no, it's wrong. We don't believe it. And there's big revolution, and there's big push against it, and then all of a sudden, the whole scientific community goes, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> We believe that. We've always believed that. That's, that's got to be true. That's how scientific progress goes boing. That's the confirmation bias. That, that's what happens. It's just a natural human way of working. So when we look at the apostles, I want you to give them a break. They have confirmation bias. They were brought up in a church that told them the Messiah will come and he'll be a reigning king and he will kick out the Romans and he will do all these wonderful things. He's going to be this great guy. And so when Jesus himself comes and says... Yeah, not yet. They can't process it. They can't filter, fit it in. It doesn't, it doesn't go through the filter because they can't grasp it that way. The lesson I think we've got to learn from this is we're all guilty of confirmation bias. We all have stuff that we have nailed and stuff that we haven't. And so we were talking about this in the new members classes. There are some things that we get that are abundantly clear and you can't compromise on. The, the doctrine of the Trinity that has been well established throughout church history. We can't compromise on that. We can't budge on that. The divinity of Jesus, that, that's well established. We can't budge. As Protestants, we would say sola fide, salvation by faith alone. That, that's clearly established. It's, it's built up throughout Romans, throughout Galatians. It's just abundantly the picture of the New Testament. We can't budge on that. How do you baptize somebody? What's the proper mode of baptism? Do you pour water on their head? Do you plunge them in water? Do you splash them? How, 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 what's the proper mode? The Bible has got some room on that. There's different ways that people honestly interpret that, and that's not a central thing. So if you grew up in a church that baptized infants, pouring water on somebody's head would be fine because that's what you've always seen and understood. If you come from a baptistic tradition, then you might be tempted to say, no, you've got to plunge them all the way under and all the way back up. Okay. Me. That's my bias. But that's not something that we need to necessarily stand on. What about end times? Um, how the end times unfold? Jesus is coming back. That's a core doctrine. We can't fudge on that. Jesus is physically coming back. Bodily, he will return. Just as the apostles saw him go, he will come back. The finer details of it? Our confirmation bias may lean us to read scriptures one way or another. So for one person, they'll read it and it'll go, well, it's abundantly clear, this happens. And another person will read it and go, well, it's abundantly clear, that's not what happens. And, and we just can't, we can't get too fine on those details. So 
this is what I'd like to call open-handed theology and closed-handed theology. There are some doctrines we hold in a closed hand. The divinity of Christ, sola fide, the inerrancy of scripture, the reality of miracles, the promise of Jesus' return, that's closed hand. We can't, be, we can't fudge on those things. Those are closed handed. And then there's open handed theology where we go, you know, there's some honest disagreement here. And I may have some confirmation bias in one direction and you may have some in another direction and that's okay. Now this applies. This isn't just Tim rambling on about something immaterial. It actually flows into what's gonna come next. The next thing that happens is Luke says, and he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting beside the road. So Luke now takes this story about the blind man near Jericho and brings it right up next to the story about the apostles totally not getting it when they're told point blank, this is what's going to happen. This is something that the gospel writers tend to do. For example, John chapter 9. Jesus heals a man who has been born blind. He was, he was blind from his infancy. He was born that way. And Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees have a conniption fit. And they bring him in and they question him. Well, you weren't really blind, were you? And well, tell me about this guy who healed you. And what's going on? Get your parents in here. We don't believe any of this stuff. And so the way that story ends is the blind man, they say, oh, you're a disciple of his. And the blind man goes, yeah, don't you want to be? And they don't get it. What, what John has done is he's painted a picture of a man who's been blind who now sees, and those who see who can't see. They're clueless. So the gospel writers will tend to bring these, these stories of recovering vision up to things where you're like, well, how can you not see that? And that's just exactly what Luke has done for us here. Is he, he ends with Jesus' pronouncement, I'm going to Jerusalem. And then he starts the very next story of a blind man. And, and this is how these begin to fit together. So here's what's happening. He's, he's going to Jericho. Jericho is kind of north of Jerusalem. It's over by uh, the, the Jordan River. Um, it was, there were two Jerichos in the day. One was desolate and empty and, and torn down, and the other one was an actual living city. Who cares which one is which? It's probably the living city. As he's going towards Jericho, there's a blind man sitting by si beside the road begging. He's, he's probably never worked a day in his life because he's blind. He didn't have any kind of... Um, uh, OSHA standards or ADA ability, you know, kind of things. He, he just sat and begged. And so as he's begging, he hears a crowd, and there's a loud noise. And he can't tell what's going on, but he, he starts asking. He says, hey, you guys, what's happening? I hear the noise. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. This Jesus is on his way. So the blind man has apparently heard of him. Uh, can I just interject something real quick? I'm reading a book right now by uh, Zach Erswine called The Imperfect Pastor. I will be starring in the movie version of it. It'll be a documentary. It's, it's called The Imperfect Pastor. And one of the things he's arguing is, Pastor, you were never called to be ubiquitous. You were never called to be in every place at once. That's God's job. Don't try to do that. And the illustration that he just used, just like last week I read it, is he said, when Jesus appeared and a demon recognized him, he says, I know who you are. Jesus of Nazareth, you're the Holy One of God. And he said, stop and think about that for a second. Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of God. He had a hometown. He had a place that he was rooted in, a place he grew up in. The Holy One of God had a place. So that, that just made me stop when I was reading this. Is Jesus of Nazareth, a rooted man, a, a man who has a hometown, Although he's traveling now and preaching, he, he didn't do this to the ends of the earth, right? Jesus gave up 
the traveling thing at a certain point in his ministry. Well, he gave up by dying and raising again from the dead, but he handed that off to his disciples. So he was a rooted man. He had a hometown. And, and I think that was kind of encouraging to us to remember we have a hometown. We don't have to go save the entire world. We, we are rooted in Lancaster, in the Antelope Valley. This is where we live. This is where we work. This is where we minister. So it's okay to be Trinity Community Church of Lancaster. But this Jesus is now traveling towards Jerusalem, towards an appointed time, and this blind man hears him, and he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What a loaded statement. Jesus, he acknowledges it's the Jesus, the one that he's heard about, but he calls him the son of David. He, is, he, he has just announced, Jesus, you are the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. And David, constantly throughout his, his time before he ascended to the throne, refused to put his hand out and harm Saul because Saul was the Messiah. He was the anointed one of God. And, and we know that the Messiah is going to be a king. That's what the Pharisees will go to, to Pilate and say, hey, look, he claims to be the Messiah, and the Messiah is a king, so you've got to kill him because otherwise he's going to be a king. So that's what he's just announced. He said, son of David, the one who will inherit the Davidic promise to sit on a throne forever, this is who Jesus is. It's a loaded statement. There's a bunch going on here. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him. Now, it could be that they were in the front of the crowd towards the road and they're rebuking him, or it could be they were in front of him. I, I think it might be they were in front of him. And they rebuke him and say, shut up. <laughs> be quiet. I think what was going is as Jesus is walking, he's teaching because that's just what he did. So can you imagine Jesus comes walking by and he's preaching one of these great sermons and somebody behind you is making a noise. He turns around and goes, shut up. I'm trying to listen. And so they, they try to quiet him down, but he keeps yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. The procession freezes when Jesus hears this man calling out. Jesus interrupts his ministry. He interrupts the great sermon series that he's preaching on the road or interrupts the great, you know, small group time or something like that. He stops because somebody's calling on him. Somebody's yelling out for him. And it's Jesus' heart, Jesus' desire to reach to this man. Now, how could he have done this? We've already seen him heal the centurion's servant from a distance, right? The centurion comes and says, don't even step into my house. I'm not worthy of it. And he says, okay, go home. And he goes home, and the servant's healed. So Jesus is capable, perfectly capable of eating at a distance. He's perfectly capable of looking over and saying, what do you want? You're healed. And be done with it. He's not he's not, that's not the lesson he's teaching. So what does he do? He stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. The imperfect apostles, the imperfect disciples who didn't get it. Jesus didn't go, I can't use you. Your theology's not spot on yet. He does. He absolutely uses him. He says, look, you guys, I want you to go over and pick up that blind man and bring him up here. Jesus could have walked to the blind man. Jesus could have healed from a distance, but he chose to use what we have just seen demonstrated before us as imperfect, incomplete, and, and if I can be honest, it feels a little muddle-headed at that point, disciples to go get this man and bring him to him. So go get him and bring him to me. And so once he's brought the man, he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
obvious what he wants him to do. That's not why Jesus is asking. is because he didn't know. He wants the man to announce, what is it that you want? And so he says, what, can, what is it that you want me to do for you? Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. So Jesus is able to use, and this is tremendously good news for us, knuckleheads like us with messed up theology to go out and grab people who are calling out and draw them in and say, here's who Jesus is. He's able to use people whose theology is way incomplete. We haven't got it all figured out. We're wrong on some important points. One of my theology professors in seminary said, we're all wrong on about a third of our theology. The hard part's figuring out which third. So we've all got it wrong at some point, and yet Jesus is still working through us. He's still ministering and laboring through us. So this man then hears, and his, and his sight's recovered, and what's the result of this great miracle? As, as the knuckleheads bring the blind man up, here's what happens. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. They made a new believer. They made a new disciple of Jesus. And he followed him, glorifying God. The man is walking behind Jesus going, God is so good to me. He's given me my sight back. I lost it. It's been gone for years, and God has given me my sight back. Isn't that amazing? And all the people, as they're going along, and they see Jesus, and they see this blind man now sighted, they all glorify God as well. They're all praising God. Lord, praise you for that. That's the net result of Jesus' ministry, is it brings glory to God. And he does it through knuckleheads like us. He does it through imperfect people like us. But wait a second. They didn't get it, right? The apostles didn't have a clue. They heard the truth. Jesus had announced the truth to them, and they didn't understand how it fit together. They couldn't put it together in their theological system, but they heard it. And they didn't go, well, he's, he's loopy. I'm not following him anymore. They kept following him. They followed him right down to Jerusalem, right into the heart of what he said would be a horrible experience. So they had the faith. They just didn't have the, the, the way it's going to work out yet. But they did arrive at truth, didn't they? Mary goes to the tomb the day after Easter, or the day of Easter, and says, hey, it's empty, you guys. And Peter goes charging forward, looks into the tomb, and what he sees is the grave clothes laying there, and the cloth that was wrapped around his head folded and set off to one side. So faith now encounters truth. That's something they can't deny. If grave robbers had stolen him, they wouldn't leave the clothes. If wild animals had snuck in and devoured the body, they wouldn't fold up the head cloth. So they're confronted with the truth. And how did that reflect them? How did that, how did that feed into their system? These men later on would stand before scribes and Pharisees and chief priests and go, whether we should listen to God or you, we're going to keep preaching the gospel. We have seen, we believed. So that's that faith that they had that Jesus was telling them the truth. The truth that they saw actually lived out resulted in what the Bible would call love. Love for God and love for man. Love isn't primarily an emotion in biblical sense. It is an emotion. It's an emotional response, but it's not primarily an emotional response. It's primarily a physical response. Greater love has no man than this, than he feels really warmly towards his neighbors. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. Love acts. Love accomplishes. Love does something. So these guys went from faith where they just didn't understand it to truth where they understood how the faith fit together to love where they actually began to live it out. And so that's the good news for us is as we're knuckleheads and we don't get it, as we misunderstand this or that, that theology, 
we're looking at our scripture and going, it's, it's in here, it, it's got to be right, i got to figure out how to fit, fit it together. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power that equipped the apostles, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We discern what the scripture says, 1 Corinthians 2, 4. We discern it spiritually because the Spirit is revealing it to us. We encounter the truth, and we begin to understand how that fits together, and it results in love. And that's how that all swirls together is it's not only truth or only uh, faith or only love. Um, it's all of them swirling together and working together. There, there are people who love the truth, and they will camp out on biblical doctrine and stand on that. And what they tend to do is, is to uh, get together and talk together about the biblical doctrine. And it's kind of like if you have a gun and you know how to shoot really straight. And you could hit a bullseye in a target on a regular basis. It's like this group got together and just took the, the gun apart. And isn't this the most beautiful gun? Look at how this is intricately made. Or you could focus just on faith. Well, I don't know what it is I believe, but I just believe. So if we're going to use that gun analogy, this is somebody who hasn't got a clue how to shoot, but boy, they keep shooting, and occasionally they hit the target. Bang, 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 bang. Hey, look, I hit one. Or there's people who just love. They don't have a clue about the truth. They're not worried about the faith, but boy, i got to get out and do it. I'm going to go take care of that target range. What we're called to do is put them all together, is to worry about the truth, to focus on the truth, to get our doctrine right as best we can, to have faith, to trust that it actually does something, and then to love. And then we're shooting on purpose intentionally at the target and hitting it on a regular basis. That, that's kind of the picture here is we're all missing it at some point. We're imperfect ministers at best. And that's tremendously good news because it's not about us and our abilities or our, our, our church systems. It's about our Savior Jesus who calls out to blind people who are yelling at him and says, come here, go get him and bring him here. It, it's about Jesus' ministry. And as blind people, as people who don't really get it all, we just follow after him. And he helps us build it up and get better at it and understand more and act more and call more blind people. So that's how he ends this section before we begin really what be starts turning into the passion narrative. Next week we'll see um, Zacchaeus, another person who is on the outside of the crowds and you know the crowd's going, just go away, and Jesus calls him out. Um, but he, he introduces it with this blind man, and he introduces it with a blind man that we have been called to serve. And so this is one more section of how we should be good disciples, is understand you're going to miss some theology. But that doesn't restrict you from ministry. You can still serve. Jesus is still working through you. He's still telling you to go out and call people to himself. And he'll straighten them out, and he'll straighten you out, and we'll get there. We're hopefully swirling in the right direction. But that's the picture of the disciple that we get, is the blind man glorifies God and draws other people into that same experience. Come and join me as I glorify God, as I see his goodness worked out in my life. Come and join me. And so the blind man has already entered in the same thing. He's already in that swirl. I've, I've seen the truth. I've experienced the truth. I have faith. My faith has healed me. And now I'm just showing the love that I have. I'm, I'm yelling from the streets. I'm not sitting and feeling warm and fuzzy inside myself. I'm yelling about this. God is so good to me. Come and join me. He'll be good to you, too. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I confess um, 
my blindness. I, I've got big blind spots in places. I'm not even sure I have blind spots. Um, Lord, I think all of us do. I think we're all in that same position where there's, there's things we don't see, and we don't see that we don't see those things. And Lord, I thank you that, that you've called us into ministry anyway. You call us to serve with you anyhow, and you'll straighten out our crooked lines. You'll fill in our gaps. You'll point out when we're about to walk into a tree. Lord, thank you for ministering through your church. And so, Father, I, I just want to pray that you would fill the church with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would put the words that he has given us on our lips, that we would announce Jesus to the nations so that blind people would glorify you. And other people who think they see would be drawn into the, that chant as well, that, that song of praise, and would join in. Lord, help us to be faithful with what you've given us. And I pray that you would increase our understanding. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, accomplish great things in and through us, we pray.